This is QJ Martin, and you're listening to the Write a Novel podcast, providing you with the tools and instructions that you need to write your novel. Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 12 of the Write a Novel podcast. Today, we're going to have the long-belated second half of the Tricking Readers into Thinking You're an Expert episode of this podcast. Now we got a lot of details, tips, and tricks to cover, so let's just go ahead and get right into the episode. But before we do that, however, let's go over the writing term of the week. This week's term is antihero. An antihero is a primary character who lacks the traditional qualities of a hero, such as bravery, courage, selflessness, or morality. They are a character that your reader should be able to fully understand and sympathize with, whether they are, quote, evil or not. The antihero, by necessity, has to be either the main character of the story they appear in, or one of many primary characters in the case of an ensemble story. If an antihero is not a main character, or on the side of the main characters, then they would be nothing more than a well-developed antagonist, because their goals would contrast the goals of the primary characters. And that would mean that they're opposing the main character and trying to keep them from reaching their goal. Now, antiheroes, as mentioned, lack the qualities traditionally found in the hero of a story. Rather than sacrificing themselves for the greater good or to help someone else, They usually make decisions that appeal to their own self-interest. At times, an anti-hero will make a morally sound choice or do the right thing. But more often than not, they don't make this choice because it's the right thing to do, but rather because it forwards their own selfish goals. Over the course of the story, it's possible for your anti-hero to begin to develop qualities that fall in line with those of more traditionally heroic characters. This is often the focus of the character's arc, and the story will have them start off thinking only about themselves, then learn to accept others into their heart by the climactic third act. A great example of this would be Wolverine from the X-Men movies. Now, when he first appears on screen, he has many of the characteristics of an anti-hero, choosing to act out of his own self-interest instead of doing the right thing. Over the course of the story, however, his fatherly relationship with Rogue moves him to act more and more selflessly until he willingly sacrifices himself to save her life. It's also worth noting that the antagonist of an anti-hero often has the moral high ground in the story. The definition of an antagonist is not someone cruel or evil, but someone who acts in opposition to the protagonist. If the protagonist is on the side of moral ambiguity, then the antagonist may be someone who is simply trying to do the right thing. Have you ever written a story with an anti-hero in the main role? If so, how did they evolve as a character over the course of the novel? Which qualities of theirs, if any, changed? And which ones remained the same throughout? Let me know on Twitter at QJ underscore author. Okay, so in Season 1, Episode 10 of this podcast, we talked about what it takes to trick readers into believing that you know what the heck you're talking about. 
It's certainly a tall order, considering that your novel has the potential to be read by anyone on this earth. And the world is full of individuals who, frankly, have a whole lot more knowledge about an endless number of topics than we do. But that's where the concept of free passes that is discussed in the Writing Excuses podcast comes into play. The idea is that every story has, essentially, a budget of free passes, or gimmies, that we can work with while writing. So there are a certain number of things that you can expect your reader to accept without question. Your book's budget, however, is not a fixed quantity. You can actually earn more free passes to your reader's suspension of disbelief as your story continues, and then use them down the line as needed. Every time you earn another free pass, your reader will be more and more inclined to put faith in you as a writer and believe that you know your stuff and don't need to be second-guessed. So how can you make sure that your books earn enough free passes to cover any potential mistakes or leaps in logic that we may make? To answer this question, I'm going to be analyzing the first two excellent seasons of the BBC drama Sherlock. Now, Sherlock Holmes has been an incomparable genius ever since his first appearance in A Study in Scarlet, which was released in 1887. The problem is that the writers who have had to adapt his character into his various depictions throughout history, including this show, Sherlock, have had to do so without his insane knack for observation and deduction. Taking on a project such as this would scare the crap out of any sane writer. After all, these writers are not just being judged on the quality of their story, which will make most of us nervous enough, but on the ability to do the impossible, and then fully explain to the audience why it is absolutely possible. So what did Stephen Moffat do in his premiere episode of Sherlock, A Study in Pink, to demonstrate the main character's extraordinary talents? Well, from Sherlock's very first introduction, Moffat took advantage of every opportunity to demonstrate his mental acuity. With one glance at his future best friend, John Watson, he was able to identify his career as a medical doctor, the location of his stationing, his psychological profile, and his desire to be Sherlock's flatmate. When Watson pulled out his cell phone, Sherlock managed to deduce that it was a gift from his alcoholic brother, a deduction that was accurate in everything aside from the sibling's gender. All of these deductions, upon further inspection, make perfect sense. They hold up under scrutiny. Every piece of the evidence presented fits perfectly into place in order to form the picture as he portrays it. After careful observation of this episode, you can't help but believe that Stephen Moffat himself is fully capable of discovering the same amount of detail if he were to meet John Watson in real life. Of course, that is so far from the realm of possibility that it's laughable at best. What Stephen Moffat did in the creation of this episode was to work backwards. He started with the answers, the deductions, and then he no doubt spent days, if not weeks, figuring out what clues there could possibly be to lead him towards the answer, and then seeded those into the script perfectly to allow Sherlock to make his amazing deductions. 
Stephen Moffat had three advantages in the creation of this episode that helped him to develop this flawless display of Sherlock's talents. First, he had as much time as needed to depict Sherlock Holmes as a genius. He had the ability to brainstorm, discuss, organize, and polish what became a scene of less than one minute on screen. Second, he had near unlimited resources available during the writing of this episode. He might not have known anything about the qualities of soldiers in Afghanistan or Iraq, but he had the internet. He had experts available on any field imaginable that could answer his inquiries with the click of a button. He could research as much as he needed until his writing was polished like a gem. And third, the viewer has precious few moments to register what Sherlock says to John Watson, and even less time to decipher it and come to the conclusion that Sherlock Holmes is, in fact, a genius. And thusly, from that moment on, the viewer is willing to believe more and more of what Sherlock says on blind faith. Eventually, the writers of the show were able to get to the point where they could simply let him make an observation and go about his business without any need for explanation. That trust built all the way to the end of the second season, when not a single viewer doubted that Sherlock had an unbelievable plan in place when he jumped off of that roof. Unfortunately, that trust does have its limits, and the premiere of season 3 of Sherlock pushed the viewer's suspension of disbelief past its breaking point. They realized how implausible everything they were being presented with was, and thus, the writer's spell over their minds was broken. Instead of confidently saying, this is how he did it, the writers meandered around the topic, bashfully throwing in, well, it might have been this, or maybe it was that. In that episode, we realized that the writers did not have a satisfying solution to make us believe they knew what they were talking about, and neither did Sherlock in this case. So the question for us is, how can we trick our readers into thinking that we know what we're talking about? Just like Stephen Moffat did, there are three things that we can do. One. Take as much time as you need. Writing a novel is a journey of months, if not years. The best part is that you don't have to get it all perfect on your first go. Most writers operate under the unfortunate belief that their first draft has to be perfect. This could not be further from the truth. The first draft is just one step in a very long journey. You don't have to have all the answers when you start writing. Step 2. Do your research and talk to experts. Unfortunately, there are occasions when time alone will not be enough to successfully write a story. There's only so much you can do on your own, and there are unfortunately many occasions where you can't just BS your way through the details. This is especially the case when dealing with topics of science, real-world cultures, jobs, settings, and so on. In those situations, ask the experts. Read articles about the topics of your story. Heck, you can read entire books on pretty much any topic you want to nowadays. So if you want to write about Cleveland, Ohio, or Boise, Idaho, then go visit Cleveland or Boise. Or, given travel restrictions, and more than likely budget restrictions as well, traverse those cities on Google Maps. 
Open up Twitter and find some natives from Cleveland or Boise that can fill in the gaps of your knowledge about these locations. If you want to write about police officers, watch a documentary or two, interview a police officer, or look into the possibility of going out on a ride-along so that you can gain first-hand knowledge on your topic. If you want to write about the effects of relativity, such as those on display in Interstellar or the Ender's Game series, pick up a couple books from the library. Message a college professor or a science aficionado. You have the opportunity and the time to learn and discover as you go. Step 3. Keep up the pace of the story. Many of the deductions presented in Sherlock, especially early on in the series, were explained and reasoned out for us to understand, even if they were just the tiniest of details. As the show progressed, however, these deductions were presented at breakneck speeds. We often didn't have enough time to even register the details of one deduction before the next one came along. As writers, we have the option to either slow down the pace and focus on every little detail, keeping things front and center in our reader's mind, or present the facts briefly and move on. We can give whatever amount of details we need to in order to make it sound like we know exactly what we're talking about. Then we can keep moving forward, letting the high quality of our narrative carry our readers forward through the story without a second thought. And here's a bonus step. Don't let the reader know that you don't know. Once you've done your due diligence, then write your story with confidence. If there are small gaps in the logic or in your understanding of a topic, gloss over them as quickly and confidently as possible. Use your free passes and move on. Don't linger on those aspects of your story because that's when the spell wears off and the whole thing falls apart. So what tactics have you developed to help trick the readers of your stories? Let me know on Twitter at QJ underscore author or go to anchor.fm slash write a novel and send me a voice message I can include in the next episode. Okay, so now it's time for this week's character development question, which is, what does the character do to celebrate his birthday? What a character chooses to do on his or her birthday can strongly influence many events over the course of your story. It can cause their birthday to be front and center the entire time, such as in 16 Candles, or a side point that comes into play in only a few key scenes, such as in Happy Death Day. In The Lord of the Rings, Bilbo organizes a party to celebrate his 111st birthday, inviting hundreds of friends and relatives. In the Gospel of Matthew and the Bible, the ruler Herod chose to celebrate his birthday in part by offering the daughter of his wife Herodias anything she asked for. In the end, Herodias told her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist. And that was, no doubt, a mood killer for that party. In Star Trek The Next Generation, Worf prefers to be alone on his birthday, participating in quiet meditation rather than having a loud party with his crewmates present. And finally, we're going to have our writing prompt of the week. Your prompt last week was to develop a new technology that would have one ability that is possible in our modern world, and one that would be impossible. And you're supposed to save that technology for this week's episode. So now your goal is to hang on to those technologies because I don't really remember what I was planning on doing with them this week. And just like that, you realize that I don't 
actually know what I'm talking about. And my spell over you as a listener is broken. Okay, how about for this week, you write a short story about a character who forgot something important. Something with end-of-the-world consequences. Why would they have forgotten this thing? And what is the result of their forgetting it? Let your imagination run wild, and let me know what you come up with on Twitter at QJ underscore author. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Write a Novel podcast. If you'd like to read the transcript of this episode, you can find it at thewriterseverything.org slash transcripts. If you'd like to listen to future episodes, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're currently listening on. And be sure to give it a rating while you're at it to let me know what you think of the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash qjmartin or at anchor.fm slash write a novel. For your convenience, all the reference links will also be in the show notes. <laughs>